Okay, go ahead. Hey, everybody. Uh, I know this is a less enthusiastic intro that I normally give you, but normally I need to make up for the fact that nothing interesting has happened over the last fortnight. But in this case, many interesting things have happened over the last fortnight. Good golly, the Oilers lost to the worst team in the history of uh, professional sports. The Oilers beat someone else. Then they fired their coach and replaced him with a bunch of unexperienced, I don't know, they made some bold moves, bold hires. I don't want to get too far ahead of things. But the long story short is welcome to the Oilers Group Radio Podcast uh, episode, Hockey This Fortnight, starring uh, me, I'm Steven, uh, also Megan and Avery. Who are Megan and Avery, you ask? Thank God you asked. Let's let them introduce themselves. Uh, Megan, who are you? Uh, my name is Megan. Uh, I teach high school here in Edmonton. And uh, sometimes I have things to say about the Oilers. And I would just like to point out that all the things I've predicted thus far this season have come true. And that's all. Well, that's a very Nostradamian of you. Well done, you prognosticator of prognosticators. <laughs> Avery, have you prognosticated anything recently? I've not, but I, you know, it's funny. I did not pronounce anything, but I noticed that when I leave Alberta, all hell breaks loose. Interesting. <laughs> well, you could be the glue holding this fragile province together. Um, I almost, it's, it's tempting to uh, go back over what brought us to here, but I think we would just, uh, since everyone already knows what's happened, we might as well start actually with here. And then if we won't, we can, uh, work backwards from things. Uh, the Oilers have uh, relieved Woodcroft and Manson of their coaching duties and hired Chris Knobloch and Paul Coffey to replace them. And it is, I would say, fairly heavily hinted that they will probably replace the rest of the assistant coaches in the summertime. Um, though not necessarily. Like, Glenn Goldson's got a pretty good case for job security if he wants it. Um, but uh, certainly I, I would be amazed if Paul Coffey is still coaching with us next year. That just had interim written all over it. But in any case, uh, big, big coaching change. They um, fired one of the winningest coaches over the last two years, someone who's had a decent amount of playoff success. The only teams that beat him have both gone on to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, however, not only were the Oilers losing the first 12 games of the year, uh, I think you can make a pretty good argument for not that the coaching was the problem uh, but that the coaching was part of the problem I don't think the the coaching was razor sharp that said I think you can also make a great case that these were good coaches who probably uh, deserved a little bit longer of a leash so I don't know that's the situation Uh, let's just start talking about it Um, Avery you uh, you're a reporter just start telling us about it what do you think what happened oh my goodness well where do we begin in terms of the changes? Paul Coffey's on the bench now. Um, Bob Stoffer is doing cartwheels and now Chris Nobuck is the head coach in NHL. Hold up, like, hold uh, up, hold up. Bob Stoffer can do <laughs> not very many things and cartwheels, I'm assuming, are one of the things he cannot do. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, we're a very body positive podcast, but God bless you, Bob. I'm not convinced that you could do <laughs> the second two-thirds of a cartwheel. I do think he's probably up for diving headfirst into the ground. I don't know that he could recover from that and spin back onto his feet. <laughs> you know, Sorry, I don't, that's just, oh that's just a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that was actually very funny. But I think in, in general, I everything, 
Um, it came down that Woodcroft was going to be fired after the Saudi Shark and finishing out the road trip was more of a courtesy to letting Jay finish out the road trip as opposed to firing him on the road. And also was more towards the Oilers trying to finalize the deal with um, Knobloch, hence why he got to also finish out the road trip. But seeing this now, I, I, I was in the camp of letting Woodcroft figure things out. I was in the camp of letting Woodcroft turn things around. And that's not going to be the case, unfortunately, for Jay Woodcroft. And now you bring in Chris Knobloch, who... Alex Thomas, he's a great guy. He's a great motivator of players. He's a great hockey personality. He comes in now. And I don't, I don't put blame on Chris Knobloch for this gig. What I find weird is he's coming in to his job. Doesn't have his own coaching staff. He's coaching what staff is already here. That was with Jay Woodcroft. And also... He's going in with Paul Coffey on that bench. Paul Coffey, who was a direct advisor to Daryl Cates. I don't like that for a couple of reasons, too. And also, Paul Coffey didn't even want to be a coach. He didn't want to be a coach. So you got a guy. Paul Coffey had the best, the highlight of the press conference for me by <laughs> far. People have been so focused on criticizing the Oilers that they skipped over what a gem Paul Coffey was in that press conference. <laughs> Uh, if any of our listeners have lives and did not watch a 40-minute press conference for a hockey team, let me sum up Coffee's comments. Um, he was like, yeah, I thought the last coaches were actually quite good. I don't think anything that happened was their fault. I thought they were doing uh, they were good coaches with a good strategy in place. Um, so they didn't deserve to be let go. Uh, also, I don't want this job. I had to have my arm twisted to take it. Uh, I have no experience other than I used to play. I was a pretty good player. That was a while ago, though. I have no recent experience. Uh, my wife doesn't seem too pumped that I'm uh, out in Edmonton. I was pretty happy hanging out in Ontario and just taking phone calls from Kate's. Uh, but anyway, let's go. It was it was awesome. Him, I wouldn't say gleefully, but very quickly acknowledging that A, he didn't want the job, B, his qualifications are marginal, and C, the last guys didn't deserve to get fired. It was great. Loved it. It just watching the replay, it looked to me like an organization that in many ways does not know what they're doing, and it didn't inspire confidence in me that they really know how to turn this around. Uh, I'm gonna get offer a qualified it's not so much I, I don't even think I can defend the Oilers. It's more that I do think Twitter in general loves a good pile on. And sometimes our love of piling on um, gets us to, I think, overstate the case against anything. Like Twitter just loves negativity. And I don't think that the people in the press conference were contradicting each other quite as much as it's being made out to be that they are on Twitter. Um, like not to keep interrupting uh, you, Avery, on your uh, kind of recap of the details of what happened. But a lot of people have pointed out that, yeah, Ken Holland said i've talked to the players and then very shortly after that um jeff jackson said we didn't talk to the players about the coaching change uh i don't think they're conflicting each other i think that holland was basically saying he checks in with the team to see how they're doing like he talks to leadership on a semi-regular basis and then jackson was saying yeah we didn't just hire this guy because he's mcdavid's coach mcdavid didn't call me and tell me who he wanted we didn't talk to the guys about whether or not we should let go of woodcraft or who we should replace him with so i think they were sort of talking about different things 
But now that I've defended something that you haven't even specifically said, what do you mean by that, Avery? That's why what I should have uh, opened with. Avery, what do you mean by that? What do you mean the Oilers don't seem on the same page and don't know, as each other and don't know what they're doing? It looks like you, you first of all, you, you wouldn't see any other team have a direct advisor to an owner be on the bench as basically an eyes and ears to the coaching staff. That, to me, comes across as very bizarre, and it comes across as, you're breaking, in a way, the security and sanctity of a locker room if Paul Coffey isn't there with eyes and ears directly to the owner. And again, the coaching staff, not letting a knoblock have his own staff. I mean, hopefully that changes because it should change them have his own people there. I feel that, again, comes across as very haphazard and last minute-ish. Like, it just, that seemed like it, the, the way the process went, it seemed like an only Oilers thing that you wouldn't see anybody else in the league do from my end. Yeah, there was a lot odd about the coaching decision, and that has to be one of the biggest things. Is that by if I understood the press comments correctly, Coffee is maintaining his role. For again, some people, it's very easy to lose track of the inner workings of, especially the Oilers' upper management. But Paul Coffee was on the payroll as a special advisor to the owner, um, which is basically we're paying you to be the owner's super friend. They're already friends, uh, but now they're. Paul Coffey is obligated to take a certain amount of uh, phone calls and discuss hockey with uh, Cates, I guess. He is keeping that job. He's still a special advisor to the owner, while also be an underling to people who are underlings to the owner. It is a very odd situation that Coffey did not seem inclined to say is not odd. Like, he was not really uh, trying to, like, calm everyone down. He was, he was basically like, yeah, no, I'm both these... I, I simultaneously work for Knobloch well, talk to the guy who Knobloch works for. Um, it's odd, but what are you going to do? Like, that's part of the reason why I would be shocked if Paul Coffey is here beyond the season, as this really, he didn't exactly say it, but reading between the lines, for me anyway, it really seemed like, yeah, I don't know. They knew that they wanted to fire these guys and they needed someone to step in. So I'm just stepping up to help my friends who I sort of work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, how close does that sound to you? Maybe yeah, I'll mean, say a name. I was Avery's who I meant by that. So. Yeah, no, that that sounds that sounds pretty accurate to how it is, and that and that and it doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's not a dysfunctional decision, but it just goes to show how the world operate in a way that if you're an out if you're an out I understand what outsiders. I mean, if you follow the Oilers, you follow them either as a fan or media like. This is this is this is somewhat normal. This kind of chaos, but I can see why outsiders look at this and go, "What is this team doing?" Yeah, well, I don't know what else other than the coffee one. What else do you find odd about this uh, this move? Uh, I I think just the fact that they didn't, they're not giving uh, Woodcock a chance to turn around, considering he has the highest winning percentage of any coach in team history. I figured there would have been some level of grace given to Woodcroft to dig himself out of this hole and let him turn things around. Now, because again, this is a guy who has two and a half years. He was one playoff series. They've made the playoffs. They've had, of course, there's still things to improve on, but it isn't like this Woodcroft was coming off a year in which last year this team was garbage. I mean, yes, well, the second round, but it was still a good team. You would figure there would have been a bit more grace like Woodcroft, try to sort, sort things out before a termination came in November. I am going to briefly make the case for firing Woodcroft, and then I'll try to respond to myself, and then I'll pass over to Megan. 
the case, I think, for firing Woodcroft, other than just the team is losing a ton. And actually, I thought Holland's point was not enough to be decisive, but was true that, all right, this is the point of no return. Like, if we wait 10 games and we're wrong, the problem is Woodcroft, then it's really too late. This is, uh, we we can still turn the season around as of right now, so now is when we have to make the call. But the other thing I'll say is every single player on the Oilers, with zero exceptions, is having, at best, an average season by their own standards. Um, and many, like half the team, is having a bad season. And if all of your players are underperforming expectations, that certainly, on its face, looks like a coaching issue. Almost every time you have a team like that, like I look at the the Ducks last year, um, or um, I would even say the Predators for a few years, uh, if you have a team or the Daryl Sutter, Calgary Flames the year before, if almost the entire team, or in the case of the Oilers, I would say the entire team, zero exceptions, everyone is underperforming what is their established level of uh, expectations, then that's probably a coaching issue. Either the coach is not that good, or in some cases it's a good coach who's lost the room or uh, maybe a good coach who's trying some new things. He's just growing a little stale and his new moves aren't, uh, aren't coming together. He's maybe less good than he used to be. It could be a wide variety of things, but uh, yeah, the, the whole team as individuals was underperforming. Um, I think that is enough to at least get you to consider a coaching change. Also, they had, some of the worst rush defense only granted it was a short sample only through the first 10 games but uh here are some some uh, private stats from uh, Kevin Woodley he said that by the private stats he has access to the Oilers had the best in zone defense and the worst uh rush defense but to just show how bad the rush defense was when you merge those things together they had the second worst defense in the league so their rush defense was so awful that it balanced out the best in zone defense to the second worst overall defense. And that probably had a huge factor in why the goalies look so terrible, that the defense was just not coming together. So that's my case for um, firing him. My case for not firing him would be everything that Avery just said. He's had a great record so far. This has been a very small sample. Also, it's possible that like half the team is injured. That would explain all the bad individual performances or at least mediocre individual performances. It certainly looks like McDavid is. Um, Try, I think, has been better, but he's not been transcendent. Um, Ekholm, I think, is still coming off an injury. Nurse has been incredibly not bad, I guess. Um, like uh, At least some of that is either on injuries or on the individual players. And also, they're... Their wins losses have clearly been bad, and not all their fancies are good. They're not one of those teams that's been uh, like, oh, across the board, all their underlying stats are good. But many of their underlying stats are quite good. Their PDOs in the absolute toilet. They're getting goalied while at the same time goaling themselves. This team just has, we're about to regress back to being at worst a middle of the pack team, Britain, all over it. Whoever takes over, I could take over as coach, and uh, they would go on a run like it would be better than the first 10 games. Um, but I, I don't know. They certainly were not very gracious to Woody. They made that call very quickly. Um, so, okay. Megan, what do you think of everything that we both just said? Um, well, so what's interesting to me is that it's not surprising to me at all that Jay Woodcroft got fired. I don't think that it was the right move, but like, it's one of those things where you can't, you can't replace your entire roster. Right. Um, you can't just like, cause yeah, there's some, there's stuff going on. There's injury stuff and you're right They're They've been very unlucky. They're getting goalied uh, by their own goalies and also by the other team's goalies, which is, you know, frustrating. Double goalie. 
Yeah, which, you know, like, that's hard to do. Um, but also, like, I think McDavid's hurt and hurt in a way that is actually detrimental and he should probably be on IR for right now because uh, him being out there is not actually helping uh, anything. Um, but I think that, like, what the, the easy solution is always to fire the coach, right? We've talked about this before, and this is anyone who's watched hockey for any length of time. The easiest solution is always to fire the coach because it's one guy or two guys rather than like having to replace, you know, an entire roster or, um, you know, hunt for a new general manager, um, in the middle of the season. I think we can all agree that a whole bunch of what's gone wrong this season is actually more about roster construction and not deployment. Um, and I don't think that Chris Knobloch, uh, is going to be able to fix the actual construction of the roster because he's going to have to work with what he's got. And, uh, like, I think that's really where the biggest problem lies, uh, which is why yesterday when, you know, the the news was announced that Woodcroft and Manson had been let go, uh, people were like, I think, rightfully angry about it in a way that you don't normally see when a coach gets fired. Like, I remember this is not hockey related. When Mike McCarthy got fired by the Green Bay Packers, I was the happiest person in the world for approximately half an hour. I was just like, this is the best day of my life. Um, this, on the other hand, I there was none of that. There's no reaction where people were happy that Woodcroft was fired because everybody kind of understands that he wasn't really the problem, but that is the easiest solution. Yeah. I mean, like you said, firing the coach is always easy. And also it's tricky for a fan to criticize the coach because most of what the coach does, we don't see. We get to see roster decisions and we get to see time on ice and we get to see press conferences, but the majority of coaching happens either in the practice or quietly behind the bench or uh, out of or behind our eyes in the locker room. So I think that most coach or most fans are at least half pulling it out of their ears uh, when they're giving their opinion on coaching. And I definitely include myself in that as well. Obviously we can also, I should add, see the X's and O's. I don't think most coaches or most fans have a great understanding of uh, hockey tactics anyway. So maybe I'll flip that question and say, Avery, do you want sure. makes a good coach? And like, give me an example of what you've seen that makes someone uh, that's a good coach that you think, oh, this is the kind of coach you'd want, or this is the kind of coach you wouldn't want. Like, how are we not just judging their record? What makes a good coach? That's a that's a question that can have a million different answers. But just from my perspective, I think if you a good coach is someone who not only finds a way to get results, but is someone who is respected by the coaching staff, by other coaches by the players, you get players wanting to play for them. And you, you, if a player can go into a locker room and the player looks excited to be, to, to play for this guy, like for example, Jay Woodcroft, you watch, you watch episodes of the drop. I see a locker room in which these guys were happy and excited after Heritage Classic. They were in, they were listening to all ears who his speech after they won. Like that is to me a good coach. And he's a good motivator. He knows how to motivate, Guys like, like the McDavid, the Dry Sidles, the Dylan Holloways, the Philip Brobergs, that's kind of coach that you you can classify as a good coach. He's and he's not someone who players tune out. I think if you're, if you're a coach that gets tuned out, there's an, there's a flaw in your coaching, there's a flaw in your methods. Jay Woodcroft was never tuned out, and even when he was first hired, you saw players talking about they enjoyed his system, they they bought into what he was teaching them. So that's what I think is a good coach. Someone who can not only win, but someone that can keep the ear of the players for a long period of time. I feel. I mean that, I, Megan. I'll kind of flip that same question to you. Thoughts on that? 
I how think can that, we even tell who we should be happy? Like, what made you so happy they fired that guy you were happy they fired? Oh, because he was terrible. Um, this is when Aaron Rodgers was still good and not crazy. And uh, he, Mike McCarthy, for reasons that I will never understand in a game against Seattle, called for a punt on fourth and two with like three and a half minutes left. And they were down by like four. And I was like, would you not, do you not just trust your quarterback to do the thing? And then he got fired like three games later. Like it was just dumb, dumb, dumb play calling, bad play calling. And he'd been there for a long time. And I think that, you know, there comes a point where the guys kind of, the, the coach loses the room, as, as we say. I think what Avery has to say is, is, it's correct. I think you, uh, what makes a good coach is somebody that guys are going to want to listen to, right? And somebody that they sort of believe would run through a wall for them so that the players will run through a wall for the coach, if that makes any sense. Like, so that there's sort of like that reciprocal relationship. Um, and one of the things that I've, I think this might be controversial. I don't see that Jay Woodcroft had that kind of personality about him um, in any way. Right. Like he was, he's very smart. He knows the game. Like, you know, he's, you know, and, and was able to sort of communicate uh, some of his frustrations with the media of late, which we can also talk about in a bit, because that's been very funny to me, but I don't see that he was necessarily the kind of coach that you would like ne- that, that people would necessarily run through a wall for. And to your point where there's a lot of things that we don't see, I think that's also fair. So we only see sort of like the outward uh, results of the coaching. Um, but I don't know. I just never got that sense that he was that guy. Um, That's such a, a tricky one. Like one guy who by all accounts players would run through a wall for was Rick bonus. The year the stars made it to the finals. A lot of players uh, seem to be like, Oh, we want to get this for Rick. He's finally getting a head coaching job after being an assistant for like 20 years. Um, we love Rick, et cetera, et cetera. But by the time of the end of his tenure in Dallas, it seemed like a lot of those guys were like, nah, I wouldn't run through a wall for that guy anymore. And uh, then he went to Winnipeg and had one of the most dysfunctional locker rooms, which wasn't necessarily his fault. I think they were dysfunctional before he got there. But uh, the point is he he wasn't able to just vibe his way out of that one. Um, so, and some guys who players would run through, uh, like I remember Pat Kane crying when they fired uh, Denny Savard because he loved Denny Savard so much. But Savard was, despite being apparently a, a great guy and a terrific motivator, not a good coach other than that. So... I agree with you that that is a factor, though I don't think it's enough, and I think that you can get by without it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly great if you are an incredible motivator, if you can get those guys going through a wall. Well, and, I'm, and I think in a, in a case like this this year with you, like you look at Woodcroft's record over the two seasons that he coached, and like, you know, winningest coach in Oilers history, you know, smaller sample size than some guys, but still, like, there's, there's a lot of things that you can go here, uh, you can kind of look at. But if you're to look at this season in particular, um, as much as, you know, as much as we can look at injuries and we can look at goaltending and there's other things that were causing the Oilers to, you know, not play to the level that people expected. Cause remember like they were a preseason, you know, cup contender, like not just cup contender, but like, you know, sort of likely Stanley cup finalists kind of thing. Right. Um, and so they're clearly not at that point right now. They've won what, four games, uh, this season, three games, um, whatever it's been, it doesn't matter. Three games, I guess. And, I just like whatever was happening, whatever they were trying, whatever was happening out on the ice during games just like wasn't working. And sometimes it's a question of chemistry and sometimes it's a question of whatever. But at some point in time, I think that like coaching is actually highly overrated in like high, high, high level sports because like how much coaching do those guys need. But I think that when you have a team in a slump like this, 
I think that that's the coach's responsibility to like try and figure out a way to unlock whatever's there uh, and make some, you know, lineup decisions that might maybe are maybe are unconventional or whatever it happens to be. But I think that that becomes the responsibility of the coach to take the pieces that they have and turn it into something successful. Yeah, I I mean, I would say that it's pretty I don't know, common knowledge is maybe not the widely believed that coaching matters the least, especially I'd say in hockey of all the the other major sports. Not that tactical decisions don't matter at all, but a lot less than say football, where a great coach can probably win with a mediocre team. Um, I don't think that's true. It's certainly not as much in hockey. Um, but uh yeah, I don't know. It's it's I'm I'm kind of going to stick with it's tricky. Sometimes it does seem like you just need to change things and some coaches don't know how to change things enough. So you change the coach and then things change even more. Like coaches get really can get fixated on what they think is a good structure, what they think is a good style, what they think is the best roster, what they think is the best communication methods. And sometimes uh, something does need to get switched and that coach is just not capable of making that switch internally. So you need to bring in, new personnel hence why you usually do get a a if even if it's only a dead cat bounce you usually get a bit of a new coach bump the players are trying to show off for the new coach he's trying some new things it unlocks something um avery what do you think of this new coach what do you make of uh chris knobloch so in terms of in terms of his record it's just a very it's an, it's an okay record in the, in the ahl and it's interesting to note that he was passed over by the rangers twice before for the head coaching gig so a little, little concern there, but he has won before in the junior level. He's very successful. He has a solid career record in the CHL. But I think, again, that coach bump thing, it is a thing that we see uh, happen every so often. We, we saw it with we saw it with um, Woodcroft. We saw it um, after let like, go tip. So, I'll, so again, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give Chris Nomic a chance, see what he can do with this roster, and certainly see if things can turn around. Because, hey, you know what? End of the day, it doesn't fall on him. This is a very last minute thing. It was a very sudden thing for him to get this job. And again, coaches will tell you NHL jobs, we all know that they're so limited. So it wasn't a job you just turn down. But I'll, I want to see what he can do. I see what he can do with this franchise, see what he can do to get them back on track this year. Yeah, I I, I have a very hard time commenting on what I think of uh, Chris Doblock, the coach, because if you. If it's tough to comment on coaching at the best of times, it's really tough for me to comment it on a coach who I've never seen a team he's coached. Um, but as I thought Holland made a pretty good case for him that he's coached at uh, and won at all levels. He's got a very good um, track record as a coach. Like you said, the Rangers have passed him over a couple of times, but um, I don't think that's that damning. It's very hard to break into the coaching fraternity. Um, less hard than it used to be. But uh, still, it's he's considered a top coach. He at least was in the mix for several NHL jobs um, coming up on this one. Jeff Jackson seems to really genuinely believe in him. I, it was a bold choice that they didn't go with someone more established when they fired one of the other top young coaches in the league. Usually uh, in coaching changes, you tend to bounce between either players, coach, or in hard-ass and or established coach and exciting young new guys. They're going new guy to new guy and also players coach to players coach. That's pretty bold, but if he's good, then he's good, I guess. I I don't really know. I don't have any thoughts beyond that. The Paul Coffey element's probably uh, a little more controversial. Megan, any thoughts on any of that? Um, Well, I think it's interesting that they went outside um, 
So now, you know how I joke how there's like 40, you know, uh, head coaches. Now there's 41 because they added a new guy into the pool, um, which means one of them is going to have to die in order for it to be like level again. Um, But it is, well, I don't know, but you know what I mean, right? Like, but it's interesting that they did add to that pool of coaches rather than go with, you know, Gerard Gallant or some people uh, in Edmonton were, of course, worried that they were going to hire Mike Babcock or, you know, um, coaches that we know and, and names that we know and that sort of thing. Uh, so I do think that that it's interesting that they went outside, and I'm I'm quite fascinated by what it is about Knobloch that they thought um, was going to be the thing. And then, of course, we find out that he coached Connor McDavid in junior, and he played uh, at the University of Alberta with uh, goalie coach Dustin Schwartz, who seems to be the Teflon man. Um, so there's connections to the Oilers anyway. So it doesn't feel like the old boys club in the way that it would be like, Hey, we're going to hire Mark Messier to coach our team. But there are still some of those like old hockey connections that I think uh, made him a, a decent choice. Um, and whether or not hiring Connor David's junior coach is the way to go remains to be seen. I think that's something that uh, we'll need some time to sort of look at in terms of whether or not that was the best decision they could have made. Yeah, I don't know if it's the best decision, but I at least don't think it was a wildly incompetent decision. Um, Like, the other thing, and maybe I'm being a simp here, but I don't think it's crazy that they're giving McDavid at least more latitude than you'd give a regular star. Um, To Like, obviously, his uh, agent is running the team. Um, Now his junior coach is coaching the team. His junior buddy was the big signing over the summer. The only issue I have, it doesn't bother me that McDavid even wants to play with his friends. Like, if again, if you didn't know, he's good friends with Fogles, very good friends with Nurse. He's was good friends with Connor Brown. Um, he was good friends with Devin Shore, uh, who he kept around for a long time. It's fine with me that he wants to play with his buddies, as most of those guys, I would even say all of those guys, are NHL players. Bob Shore is a fringe NHLer, but he wasn't playing 82 games a year here anyway. So it was fine with me Shore's basic role what bothers me is those guys are overpaid other than Shore, but the other three i mentioned are overpaid by an average of i'd say 1.5 million dollars each so that's four and a half six million dollars um depending on how you want to do the math um that of just mcdavid buddy money we're spending if anything his buddies should be taking a discount to come play here like it we only have so much cap room that's the problem like i would say that after the goaltending, our single biggest problem so far this year has, uh, well, it's pretty close. There's a lot of single big problems. But Del- Darnell Nurse has only been fine, I guess. He's been a fine second-pairing defenseman. He's not sabotaging the team or anything. But when you are getting paid $9.25 million, you need to be awesome out there. So it's fine if we're hiring McDavid's buddies, but we can't overpay them by this much. Um but yeah, if again, this is the I think I'm I'm digressing a little bit. By all accounts. He's at least open to the idea of re-signing here. And I do think that it's probably worth something to, uh, I don't know, hire coaches that he likes. You'll As long as you manage everything around that competently, uh, you'll come out ahead if you find ways to keep Connor McDavid. Um, so I'm not furious that they hired a coach that his team really believes in, um, as that coach at least seems finally qualified i think the timing is a bigger issue like this team is really just as avery was saying uh at the beginning like set up to go on a run like all their 
not all, but many of their underlying stats are good. Their goaltending appears to possibly be stabilizing. Their defensive structure appears to maybe be stabilizing. Novlock even said in the interviews, like, I'm going to come in and do basically the same defensive structure as Woodcroft was running, or at least a very similar one. So I think that it's it's I'm less critical of the Knobloch hiring than I am happy to say that uh, Woodcroft did not get a great deal. He probably also we haven't even touched on goaltending yet. Um, Megan, let's actually let's stop talking about coaching. I think we've all said our pieces on that. What what do you have to say about the where goaltending fits in all this? Well, I mean, the goaltending has been terrible, right? Like, I don't I don't think we can mince words. There's no way. Back, Megan. Yeah. Okay. Um. So I think like the goaltending has been abysmal, right? Like both Stuart Skinner was gonna was not gonna be as good as he was last year because he's just he's not that good. He got lucky last year and the the team was, you know, it, there's a whole bunch of things that happen when your goalie's playing reasonably well. Um. And then you know your team plays a little bit better and then the goalie can kind of you know as long as you're outscored it doesn't really matter if you let in four goals if your team's scoring six and seven right. But right now if your team's scoring one or two and you're letting in four goals, that's obviously going to get you a record of whatever it is that they have right now. Um, but the fact that Jack, Jack Campbell was uh, sent down to the minors, right? He's waived and he's now his cap hit is uh, 3.85 instead of $5 million. So they've saved a little bit of money there, but not very much. Um, very that, little because they had to call that, someone new up. Yeah. So it tells you like, the, I mean, obviously we've known for a long time that Jack Campbell was overpaid. Like this is not, um, this is not something that is surprising to anyone, I don't think. Um, but just the simple fact that between the two of them, because I know you you like to talk about how there's like eight or nine like actual um, starting goaltenders in the league, and then a bunch of like or like legit bona fide number ones. And then you got a bunch of like one A one B sort of like good tandems. The Oilers this year did not have a good tandem, right? Like that's that's really what it was. And part of it is Stuart Skinner was playing poorly. Jack Campbell was also playing poorly. And, you know, a lot of their struggles, I think, are goaltending related. And there's not much that a head coach can do from the bench other than tell the goalie to stop sucking, right? Like, what what is it that he can do to make that better? Like, there's nothing that a coach can actually do. Yeah, that's I mean, it's kind of an old joke at this point, really. But uh, if you just track the best goaltending, it sure looks like you're tracking the best coaches. Um, the coach of uh, the year tends to get incredible goaltending. Coaches who get fired tend to have had a run of bad goaltending. And I think it's accurate to say that defensive structure plays a strong role in that. But it's also accurate to say it's it's my favorite stupid cliche because it's kind of true. But goaltending is 70% of hockey. Unless you don't have it, then it's 100%. Um, and I some people were offering very noble defenses of Jack Campbell, saying the problem was mostly the Oilers' rush defense. I got to say, Campbell going down and getting pulled in two straight AHL games certainly is not definitive evidence, but it does not help the it wasn't all the goaltending case. Um, that said, Avery Stewart Skinner has been bad so far this year, too. Why are they um, sticking with Skinner so hard and saying this is his crease? Why didn't they? Uh, why haven't they played Calvin Picard yet? Why is there still so much faith in Stewart Skinner, even though he's been as bad as Jack Campbell? 
Uh, it's a good question as to why they haven't given Picker a start yet. Because one thing, I don't want to see them burn out Skinner. But I will say this much. I, I, I think it's it's a sophomore slump showing for Skinner. Unfortunately, came at, it's come at the wrong time for the Oilers. I still do think Skinner has a chance to turn things around. He's still, again, younger than Jack Campbell. Still a chance to turn things around in many aspects of his game right now. But it is surprising that they have not given Picker a start against anybody i'm expecting that to eventually come because you again you can't run through skinner for 30 40 games in a row I, I just don't see it happening but i do think skinner will find a way to to um to turn around we, we've seen we've seen glimpses of him make big saves we saw him make big saves against the rangers i kept that he kept them in that game it wasn't for skinner that game probably would have been five or six nothing and we saw him make some saves it wasn't a ton against Seattle in their last win here. So I think they're, this team believes Skinner will find a way to turn things around sooner than later. But of course, you didn't want to see him have a fake percentage under 870 in his second season this early. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really cannot be overstated how awful both goaltenders have been. Awful. Awful being the operative word. They are not both disappointing. They were both awful, team-sabotagingly awful. Um, however... I, I'll leave it to go strong in here. I thought that Skinner played great against Seattle. Like he didn't face a ton of shots, but he did save a couple of five bell chances. And that was uh, the big problem so far is every time the Oilers gave up a chance, like a decent chance, which is inevitably going to happen. The other team was scoring on all of them and not to get all, have you ever played the game? But one of the, have you ever played the game points that I think is actually pretty fair is I don't know if uh, you folks at home have ever been playing beer league uh, in front of a goalie who you're like, ah, if we let them get even one shot, that's too many. We can't let them get any shots. He's going to let everything in. It is very demoralizing and also compromises everything you do. You can't take any chances. You you get behind early, and when you're behind, that just change you can't play your normal smart system you you start playing with a little bit of a uh, desperation and it really just screws everything up like it was beautiful to see skinner make a few big saves early in that seattle game because all it did was not wreck everything and once everything wasn't wrecked the rest of the game went pretty well they actually uh did what they've been doing in the first period against many teams that they uh, were defeated by so far this this uh, year. They just kept on outshooting them by like a two to one margin. Like I'd say the definitive game this season was the Vancouver game when the shots after the first period were like twenty one to two for the Oilers. They were down one nothing. It was. I'm not making that number up. I think that might have actually been right. They were outshooting them twenty one to two and were down one nothing. It was just unbelievable how much they could not buy a break. And maybe I'll add that's my other defense for Woodcroft is they could not buy a break all season long. They couldn't buy a save. They couldn't buy a goal. They were getting goalied. Their best players were getting hurt. They were just getting every conceivable piece of bad luck. So as soon as that luck, which is a dumb thing to say, but you just look at PDO, they've got league worst PDO. When that normalizes, even without a good coach, they're going to get a little bit better. So, um, yeah, I don't know. To answer my own question uh, that I asked Avery, I think it's they're mad at Campbell because at least Skinner's cheap, whereas Campbell, they're paying him $5 million and he, he can't stop anything. So, uh, I don't know. We we said enough about uh, coaching and goaltending. Um, what else do you guys want? To, they won the last game and they won it looking pretty good. Uh, you encouraged it all, Megan? I mean, they looked pretty good against the Kraken. I don't know. I haven't watched a Seattle play once this year other than that game, so I don't actually know how they're doing. Um, 
but they look it looks like a complete team sort of thing and it's interesting like i'm curious um Avery and I, I, I can't, I don't want to burn a source, but Avery and I got some inside information about uh, this coaching business. And uh, apparently the call was made after the loss to the Sharks. Um, mm. You know, the yeah, sort of the discussion. and not anyone, I don't think. No. Oh, no, it doesn't. But, but I'm curious, my, my sort of curiosity about that game against Seattle was like, did, how much did the players did they know what was coming? Were they able to like sort of see the writing on the wall? Cause like I saw that somebody on Twitter and I don't remember who it was, uh, had, uh, after the others lost that game, there's, uh, some footage of Woodcock and Manson walking across the ice. And it looked apparently to this person that, uh, Woodcroft said, well, that might be it. Um, which maybe he did say that. Maybe he didn't. I couldn't, I'm not a lip reader. I can't, uh, I have no opinion on that. I don't really have much of an opinion either. Um, but you know, who knows? And I'm just curious to know if, that effort against the Kraken was sort of like, well, we got to try, we got to do something here. Right. Uh, and so they came out and they played like the Kraken are fine. You know, they're below 500 right now. Um, but they've, uh, yeah, they're not as bad as the others have been, I guess. Like, I don't know what you, uh, you know, how to put that, but I, I just wonder if that effort against them, it looked like a pretty complete game and Skinner played pretty well. Um, but I'm just curious to know if that was because they're like, oh, if we don't win this game, like our coach is getting fired and they liked him enough to like, you know, work that hard. I don't know. I'm not sure. So I don't know if I'm encouraged yet. We'll see what happens tonight and, and in the future. And then, you know, kind of go from there over to these next like four or five games and sort of see what that might uh, bring out for them. They, I mean, they weren't awful against the Sharks. I, they certainly weren't great against the Sharks, but um, they... That was one where all three of the Sharks goals uh, were, I, I don't blame the goalie on them, I'll put it that way. It would be great to get a save. That would have been some nice time for a save, but they also couldn't buy a goal. That's, I guess, mostly on them for not being able to finish, but it's just embarrassing. I think those are the kinds of games that happen sometimes. You generally outplay the other team, um, but you lose because hockey's a very chaos-heavy uh, game. They didn't steamroll the Sharks. However, I think the Sharks also got quite up for that game. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's I think the based off their play in the last two games, especially against Seattle, I don't think the co- the team had quit on the coach. They're not trying to get their coach fired or anything. But the one thing Holland said uh, that is true is ultimately that hockey can be a ruthless business and it comes down to wins and losses. So uh, let me ask you this, Adrian. Let me ask, speaking of Ken Holland, um, a lot of people are reading into that press conference, and again, I think I think this is a little bit of an overstatement, but enough people have, are making it that I have to admit, maybe I'm wrong, uh, that Ken Holland did not make this decision, and he's essentially already a dead man walking um, who's just filling the GM seat till his contract expires, and this is clearly Jeff Jackson's team, and Ken Holland's an empty suit at this point. What do you make of that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't wouldn't say he's totally an empty suit, but it feels like the power is going away from Holland and they are preparing to move forward. So maybe the power he he once had last year or the year before is now being shifted away more towards Jackson in preparation of Jackson hiring his next GM for next season, I feel. Yeah, but if you already know you're moving on from, like, I'm genuinely curious, how much power does Ken Holland have? Um, Like, 
I think that it is pretty obvious that the uh, what's his name, the Jack Campbell decision is just considered a disaster at this point. And I would say one of the worst signings of his entire career, especially since this was not one of those disasters where, man, it sure looked like a good move at the time, but it just didn't work out. It looked like a bad move at the time and it didn't work out. Um, so I wonder if this has got him functionally fired. Uh, I'll give him a little bit of coverage, sort of, in that some people were mad at him because he said in the press conference and in a separate interview that he had been trying to make a trade for the last two weeks. There's nothing out there. Um, and people are like, ah, that's your $5 million job. No, not at this point in the season. Nobody's tanking yet. Other than the Sharks, they don't have anything you want. Like, is Mackenzie Blackwood really improving your goaltender situation? Like, ah, maybe, but I certainly wouldn't pay very much to try Mackenzie Blackwood instead of the guys that we already have here. Like, there's no one good who's actually going to change things available. Like, the Flames have hinted maybe some of their defensemen might be available, and maybe we might want to do that, but maybe they wouldn't trade to us anyway. So it's, I don't know. I think that Holland right now does legitimately have a case for having his hands tied. The problem is they were tied by Holland in the past. The biggest reasons why his hands are tied is the Jack Campbell contract. And probably the second biggest reason is he overpaid Darnell Nurse, who I still think is a very good player. I like Darnell Nurse, but he is unquestionably overpaid. And that was an unforced error. He signed Nurse at the worst possible time to sign him. And for what was too much money, even at that time, uh, it was a really strange decision. Um, so I think that I'll put it this way. I think that Holland's decisions over the last four months were very justifiable, even going into people like, ah, he didn't tweak the roster at all. The roster was very good. This was an excellent team last year. Um, he added Connor Brown and pretty much called it a day. That was still what most experts agreed was one of the top two rosters in the league. Uh, so I don't blame him for that. It's the decisions he made in the 12 months leading up to the last four months that put him in this position. So I don't, uh, I don't know how much I can't passionately defend him. That was just me rambling for a long time to say if Helen's on his way out, uh, he's more than earned it in my opinion. Megan thoughts on the overall Ken Holland era. You have anything nice to say about him? Anything especially damning? Well, and I think what we've learned uh, from watching the decisions that he's made, like there's the debate about who's worse, Peter Trelli or Ken Holland. And uh, Alex Naver and I have had conversations about this. And I would contend that if the Oilers had not fired Craig McTavish when they did and held on to him even for like another year, this team is entirely different. Um, I don't know that that was the play to go there. Uh, at that time, but I that just, was widely you know. rumored to be another Mick GM decision, by the way. Yes. Well, but that's, I mean, I don't know. The kid was 18 years old. I don't think he gets any say in that. Yeah, it would have been um, his team, not him personally, but his team. Yes, but but the, that should, that's absolute garbage. Um, anyway, I, I've heard the rumor and I just think that that's, the guy hasn't played a game for you yet and you're going to fire your GM. Like, I think that's garbage. But anyway, um, so we talked a little bit about this. And the the question about whether Ken Holland is worse than Peter Torelli, um, from a personal standpoint, I would say no. <laughs> I got my reasons. We all know what they are. Um, but I don't think that Ken Holland, I think what we've learned about Ken Holland is that he was good as a GM in Detroit because he didn't have a salary cap to worry about. And uh yeah, like that. And they had the excellent European scouting and we know that to be true. Right. And they got super, super lucky hitting on some fifth and sixth and seventh round picks who like turned into 
excellent, excellent NHLers, uh, like for a long, long time. And I, that, that is lightning in a bottle that you cannot replicate. And there's no possible way that Ken Holland was going to be able to replicate any of that here because he doesn't know how to operate in a salary cap. Um, I'm just looking, I'm on their cap friendly page right now. And like, it's real bad. Like just looking at the percentage of the cap that, that certain guys hold and whatnot and how many of their, and I know you don't want to overpay like your bottom six or whatever, but the fact is that like their bottom eight are approximately 12% of the cap. Uh, is You're talking about the Oilers right now, right? Yes. Um, okay. It's pretty bad, all things considered. Like, I mean, because you have Darnell Nurse making $9.25 million a year. Uh, and he absolutely shouldn't be, like you said. And so I think some of the things that Ken Holland has done were a little bit panicky. And I wonder if, because he's operating in a market, like, yes, Detroit is maybe not people's most... Um, is not the favorite market, but it's an American market, which makes a big difference. I wonder if operating in this Canadian market, if some of the moves that he made were panic moves in order to make sure that they weren't like scrambling, you know, to fill a roster basically. And I've thought that for a while. I think the Holland versus uh, Chia argument is absurd that Chia is one of the worst GMs in the history of the NHL. Um, Whereas Holland is just consistently especially like in the cap era anyway, consistently mediocre. I think he maybe deserves more credit than he sometimes gets for some of the innovation the Red Wings did that he was a part of. But once the rest of the league caught up to that, European scouting and um, not playing goons being probably the two biggest, uh, their innovation was neutralized. But the, the thing about Holland that was clear in his time in Detroit, remained clear in his time in Edmonton, is he did not understand the salary cap. He was a mm-hmm. hockey man. He knew hockey at least somewhat well. He I think he actually built organizations pretty well um like organizationally he was strong in detroit but he did not understand the salary cap at all and that is still all over his decisions in edmonton i am a little friendlier to their current um cap friendly page than i think you are uh like as of right now i don't think their cap looks disastrous but they made a lot of mistakes on the way here they could be the biggest way to condemn ken holland is opportunity cost um, the Duncan Keith trade being the the loudest example, but there were so many times there was some cheap player available that he just didn't have any interest in because he didn't seem to understand that part of what made the guy so good was that he was available for that cheap. Um, like one of the best examples I can think of off the top of my head is Matt Duchesne this summer was available to anybody. They they were said they were willing to eat half the cap, and he's like, "Well, we don't need that guy." Matt Duchesne of four million dollars is a great deal. That's the kind of cap savings you just need. Um, mm-hmm. paying Darnell Nurse that much money over that much term coming off a career year a year before you had to sign him like he just doesn't understand leverage he doesn't seem to understand it's hockey per dollar he doesn't understand the cap and that I would give him a rating of a C as a GM which is not awful but that he's had this little success over five years of uh, running a team with McDavid and Dreisaitl in their prime is certainly not a ringing endorsement. Uh, Avery, anything to add to that? Thoughts on Ken Holland? Whether or not this is oh, the end of him? I I do think it's the end of it. Just talking toward talking people who are in the node around the team and other reporters. It every ask everything I've heard sounds like yes, this is going to be the the final year of Ken Holland. He will not return. Maybe maybe comes back as the advisor next year, but he's not going to come back as a GM next year. They will be finding a new person. What I think is interesting in that aspect more is that not just the fact that Holland is going to be done in GM next year, it's the fact that we've heard uh, nothing yet in terms of leaks. 
as to who could be the next GM of the world. I mean, I'm sure we will eventually, but I have heard no prospective names in terms of who will be a next person in that office leading this franchise going forward. Well, I mean, it was rumored to be Steve Stales, but obviously he's yeah. now running the yep. senator. So, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and it's no certainly no longer going to be Brad Holland. If um, not to disparage Brad Holland, I'm sure he uh, he again by most accounts does some things well. It's not like he's a um, pure nepotism hire, but you you don't fire a guy and then replace him with his uh, son, especially his son who definitely his last name helped him get to where he is. That would just be a very odd move. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm very curious to see uh, who they bring in. Um, Jeff Jackson appears to be a little more progressive than past uh, Oilers uh, management has been. Like, he's already brought in Michael Porchetti. He's just casting a different net. He certainly are, has his own network of connections that he values highly. I think that a lot of Oilers fans don't understand the degree to which all of hockey is just overlapping old boys clubs. The Oilers aren't the only ones who do that, but he at least has a different network. So I think we will see something different. I don't know. I'm curious. Uh, I wouldn't call yeah, myself optimistic, but I'm not, I don't know. It's fine. We'll see what happens. We all know who it should be and who it won't be. Um, well, they're cowards. Uh, Megan. They are they, cowards. They're not ready for that jelly as uh, they... I believe <laughs> what the kids are saying these days. Um, no, I just, you, you know, it's funny that you say like that Avery points that out, that there hasn't been that discussion about like who it might be. Cause there really hasn't um, been much in the way. Cause like we have like Avery's connected enough. He's around enough. Uh, I think people forget that he's in the room sometimes probably when they're talking. So like, you know, and not in a bad way, but I just get this feeling that like, you know, he hears some things and like Alex has his ear, he knows some stuff, right? He's working um, in the uh, in the Rangers organization and he hears some things uh, as well, you know? And so like, it's not like we don't have people that would be like, oh, hey, I've heard this, right? And so it, it is interesting that there hasn't been that discussion just yet. I would say it is, I was going to say it's only October, but it is only like mid-November. Like it's not, it's not late enough in the season to like be thinking necessarily who that replacement is going to be. And if the coaching change works then I think there's less urgency to deal with you know the end of Ken Holland's contract and the the new GM uh then if the coaching change doesn't work and they end up missing the playoffs then I think that that's a very different uh I think that's a very different way of having to do business because not only are you going to have to figure out like what to do do we keep the coach like we just signed him to this big deal but also like how do we what do we do with this roster to, you know, mitigate some of the problems that we've had and those sorts of things. And that takes a very different kind of GM than the last two that they've had. I think. Mm, yeah. Um, I agree. The, on the upside, you know, we've been talking about tough stuff. Something that I think is pleasant is uh, the lines for tonight's game uh, come out, or at least the line rushes in practice. And it looks like we're seeing a little bit of a uh, top line Sam Gagne. Gagne has been one of the few bright spots I have really enjoyed watching him play, not just because I'm sentimental, um, but he has been making a lot of smart plays and hard plays. And to be honest, things that he did not always do during his first tenure with the Oilers, he's uh, winning a lot of puck battles. Um, he's just playing like a crafty veteran, um, doing everything that you would hope Sam Gagne would be doing at this stage in his career. And he's going to be playing 
uh, with McDavid on the top line. So I don't know. That's exciting. Hopefully McDavid continues to get healthy. His um, analytics have been bad. Um, Dries have been less amazing than usual, but McDavid's have been bad. Uh, so he, I'd put a lot of money on hurt. Um, I hoping he continues to get healthy and Ekholm continues to get healthy and, uh, the team continues to tick back up. I think they, sh- I think we'll see them regress to the mean. The dice have no memory. So just cause they've had bad luck so far, doesn't mean they're suddenly due for good luck, but if they just stop getting bad luck, I think they'll be all right. Maybe that's how I'll kind of close this conversation. Avery predictions going forward. Will they be all right? Predictions going forward, end of the day, this is still a team with Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Evan Bouchard, Zach Hyman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's the Pacific, Pacific Division. Of course, the division title, that's long gone, that's long shot. Vegas is running away with that now as they're up, as they're up on about like 65 points already. But I think they will turn this around and make it uh, and be a playoff team and probably win a couple of rounds. Now, Will it get past round two? I don't know. I'm not sure if this team has it right now to get that far. But I still think this team will turn around and get into a playoff spot in the uh, West, either as Pacific team number two or number three, I feel. Yeah, I'll maybe add. I just realized I should have added one more button to uh, Megan's point. Um, Just on the Ken Holland's legacy, he's made good choices. He's made some bad choices but the Jack Campbell contract was ultimately a disastrous choice. It was the biggest problem with the Oilers. This, as much as they've had other issues, their biggest problem has been their goaltending. And Campbell is the two things that you can't combine bad and expensive. And um, yeah, that's, that, that's really it. If uh, the goaltending balances out they'll be all right. Uh, but that was just a disastrous, disastrous mistake. And sometimes you only get one disaster. And I don't know. Fair enough. He total total unforced error. Absolutely their own fault. Kind of disaster. Uh, Megan, will they be okay going forward? Uh no. I think they will not be. I think they'll be. They won't be in the bottom of the the league. But I feel I mentioned this in our like season prediction episode that they were due for a string of bad luck and injuries, and uh, I think that they are. Like, and I know you know whatever you can't. You're not due for good luck or bad luck or whatever, but they have been pretty lucky over the last few years. And I think that whatever's going on with McDavid especially um, is significantly impacting his performance in a way that I think is detrimental to what the team is probably capable of. Um, I think that at some point in time, they're going to lose a bunch more games and we will see McDavid shelves for the season. Uh, he'll be on LTIR. That's then I'm not saying that that's what I necessarily want to have happen. Cause I think it's always great when you have your best players in the sport playing at the highest level that they can, but it's very clear that he is not capable of that right now. Um, and I think that unless he gets healthy real quick, I think that that's going to be a problem for them. I agree that, his current level of play is a problem, especially when you're kind of used to McDavid being superhuman. I'm not quite on board with what I hear a lot, not just you, a lot of people saying that, ah, it's just McDavid's carrying this otherwise mediocre team. I think it's an otherwise decent team and everyone on the team, like I said, everyone's playing badly. Um, There could be that there's 
or if not badly, at least not incredibly, um, that there's a, a lot of either injuries or, like I said, maybe just the coaching, mysterious performance issues to go around. Um, I, I am a little more optimistic on McDavid's health than you. I think that he's going to keep getting healthier. The fact that he's playing right now, um, he's still scoring like as much as his play hasn't been great. Uh, the last time I looked, he was still on pace for a hundred points. So I've even heard a lot of people say like, our power play sucks this year. Power play is just no longer transcended. It's still ninth in the league in power play percentage. So I think they probably still want McDavid around. Obviously, I don't want him to aggravate an injury, but playing hurt and just not being as good as you can possibly can be is sometimes acceptable. Um, here's my real question, and I think you've already answered it for me. But So maybe I'll just ask Avery. If you were the GM, if you're Jeff Jackson slash Ken Holland combined into one person wearing a hat, would you be willing to trade an unprotected 2024 first for immediate help? Knowing that you are currently the second, uh, I haven't actually looked at the standings since the last win, but before the last win, the second worst team in the league. So you actually might be trading the one thing you never want to trade, an unprotected lottery pick, potentially first overall. But who knows, if you get that help, that might turn you into a cup contender. Uh, Avery, would you trade an unprotected 2024 first for immediate help? I would, because you, as a team, we, we've kept preaching, if I'm, if I'm this, Jack, Jeff, this Jeff Jackson, Ken Hall hybrid with Fedora, you know, you, you talk about cup or bust, you want to win now, here's a chance, you got to win now. You will get a lot back for that first round pick, unprotected pick. You want to win, you want to get back the things for immediate help? Be it whatever, it, whatever it could be, it could be another four, it could be a goaltender. I do it 110. percent Yeah, I have to say, I think I do too. This is a way to turn your weakness into a strength. Right now, a bunch of teams are looking at the Oilers' second last place, licking their chops. Maybe I could get an unprotected first out of them. Use their greed to your advantage and get something good from them. Um, of course pending return. I wouldn't just give it away all willy-nilly. It would have to be something incredible, but uh, there are right-handed defensemen or goaltenders good enough that would make me say, yeah, we have to take that deal. Um, all right. That's, I think, I think that's been the, certainly the Oilers this fortnight. Megan, any other oiler business you'd like to discuss? Nope. <laughs> all right. Then I think it's time for another round of Around the league, let's all pick one around the league story that's jumping out at you right now. And I, I'll start. Um, I'll, I'll, I've, I've already mentioned it, but the Calgary Flames fire sale appears to have begun. So far, it's just uh, basically Zadorov likes being a flame, asked to resign. The team made it clear they're not super interested in resigning him. And he said, All right, then trade me, which is. Very shrewd on his part. He's about to get what will probably be the last big contract of his life, maybe the biggest of his life. You're not going to maximize your own value playing for a floundering team whose problems aren't on defense anyway. In fact, their defense, of course, quite good, so you're in more of a depth role than you might be on a different team. Um, but since the Doroff asked for the trade, it's been... We were starting to see rumors that Tanev might be available, that Noah Hannafin might be available. Um... I haven't heard uh, Uyghur yet, but uh, man, that'd be cool if he was. I love him. He would be the ideal fit for the Oilers, but I think Tanev would be great too. But even if those guys aren't going to the Oilers, the Calgary Flames appear to be beginning to accept that um, this is not their year, despite what I think on paper looks like a decent roster. 
Um, that's that's what's jumping out to me the most. Here's my suggestion to fix it, or at least to begin the fix. This is a big trade, a bull trade, a huge trade. What about if they trade Jonathan Huberto for Mark Edward Vlasic? Uh, now, that might seem crazy to you folks at home, but Vlasic is, by all accounts, uh, totally washed, like barely even an NHL player and an incredibly expensive one, whereas Huberto was just remarkably overpaid. But there are different stages in their rebuild. The Sharks are starting to pull out of theirs. They've already got one uh, top five pick. I mean, they're awful right now, but they're going to start trying to pull out of this. Maybe a better way to put it. They've got one top five pick uh, just this last year, and they've clearly got another one coming um, this year. They could maybe use someone to play with Hurdle, use someone to play with these exciting young players that they've got. They're about to start trying to pull up. Uh, Vlasic's got three more years at $7 He's 36 years old, and yeah, he's just absolutely sunk cost um, disaster. You just are waiting out for the time to tick on that. But for the Flames, that's good. It's only this year and two more of $7 million as opposed to eight more of uh, uh, Huberto's deal. I think that trade makes a certain amount of sense. Saves, the like obviously the Sharks win it in a hockey sense, but lose it in a money sense. I don't know. That's, that's at least my suggestion uh, for the Flames pending... I don't know if they're going to totally implode, but I'm sure that they would like to if they could because that Huberdeau thing is just not working out. Avery, favorite story from around the league? Favorite story from around the league? Ooh, that is a, that's a good question. That's a good question. Favorite from around the league? Uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on I'm gonna stay on brand. I'm going to stay on brand once again. But hey. Honestly, How are those coyotes doing? <laughs> <laughs> they're near a playoff spot. Like, they are... They're threatening. They're seven, six, and one. And again, like they're getting, they're getting all right playing right now. They're above five hundred. They're better than Minnesota right now. Better than Chicago. Better than Nashville. Like they're hanging around, and they're getting decent play from Clayton Keller, Matias Michelli, um, Logan Cooley. Like them, people saw them as again being two years away from being two years away, and they are still hanging around in a wild card spot territory in Western Conference. It's fun to see them find ways to continue. Two win games and their four and two at home and mullet. Yeah, I agree. They good for them. They have uh, they're starting to give their fans something to watch, and that's always positive to see. Uh, Megan, uh, let's talk about Connor Bedard. Let's do talk um, about Connor Bedard. I um, I don't like the Blackhawks, and I never have really. I will pay attention because Taylor Hall is there. Um, but what I like about Connor Bedard more than uh, I've liked about lots of like the young sort of like superstars that have come into the league, he's got this just like little bit of attitude to him. Like, I don't know if you saw yesterday. Um, maybe it was from Saturday when they're they playing against Florida. I don't know if it was yesterday's game or Saturday's game. It doesn't matter. Um, he scored one of like 9 billion goals that he scored in that game. And as he like skated around behind the net, he was just like, it was just like, the shrug at the fans, like, what are you going to do about it? And I just really enjoy um, that he's as good as he is. Like, he's unbelievable. But he's also, he seems to, like, in a way, have embraced, like, the magnitude of his stardom pretty quickly. Uh, And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, I I agree. I think he seems cool. And, like, I've been... Everyone's obviously bullish on Bedard, but I feel I've been on the even more bullisher side. I think he had a better junior career than even McDavid had. 
and watching him in the preseason, I went ahead and predicted a 40-40-80 season for him. So uh, I'm enjoying his success personally so far. Um, all right. Those are some good around the league stories. Would we like to finish off with a round of highly personal questions? Uh, sir, I, this isn't necessarily a highly personal question, but I'm going to um, preface this with a little story. I was Last week I was driving somewhere. It was in the evening. And in the city, this is very important that this was in the city, that I was driving uh, on a narrow-ish street, uh, so it wasn't like super wide. There was no median in between the two lanes of traffic. And there was a guy in a pickup truck who not only did he have the brightest LED lights that I think I've ever seen in my entire life, he had had a modification done to the front of his truck. So there was essentially like a light bar on the grill. And it was so bright that um, I have my lights on auto and they turned off. Wow. Um, And so my question is, what should be the punishment for people who do things like that? Because I would vote for literally any political party that is like, no more LED headlights, back to halogens only. I'd be like, done, check. Absolutely, let's go. Um, so agree. What is the punishment for people who draw? And this is like in the city. I don't understand why you need that much light emanating from the front of your truck in the city where there are streetlights or on the highway where like everyone around you is going to be blind. What's the punishment for people who do things like agree. that? Passionate, passionate agreement. I hate LED lights. They should be banned nationally. Um, I don't know how much we can blame the manufacturers. It seems like a regulation uh, issue. We need to ban LED lights. They make life less safe, not more. I hate them so much. Avery, thoughts on LED lights? In the city, like they are, they are a nuisance. And for the punishment, you should have to have your egg, your house egged for half an hour. Just egg your house. <laughs> I think um, you should be uh, your one of a random family member should be selected and executed in front of you if you drive. Oh, wow. uh, with, with no, well, that's what it's actually hard to blame individuals because they come standard. There's so many features that I don't want in my vehicle that it's hard to avoid. I just had to buy a new car recently, and there's certain features it's hard to avoid. You're not choosing them; they're just put in the vehicles. Um, so that's more what I meant. I take back the, it's difficult to blame manufacturers. Absolutely blame them. It's difficult to blame individuals with bright lights when they come in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So, um, true. someone should be executed in front of someone over something. I don't know. Uh, this isn't a question. As long as we're just stating our strong political opinions, I'm thinking of running for city council next time as a single, uh, issue candidate. I want to get the traffic lights taken out of that traffic circle on 118th Ave and St. Albert Trail. Why are there lights? Just let it be a traffic circle. Traffic circles are awesome. And if you don't like traffic circles, I don't know, go back to kindergarten, you big crybaby. Learn how to drive. They're not hard to figure out. I realize they're tricky the first two or three times, but then you get it and it's fine. Traffic circles prevent fatal collisions. They prevent uh, long idling like they do a dramatic... um, reduction in uh carbon emissions because cars spend less time idling at red lights they move make traffic move more smoothly um they they save lives everything about them is good putting traffic lights in one gives you the worst of both worlds that intersection is so dangerous and stupid i hate it i hate it so much um those are that's my thought avery you want to just unburden yourself politically Un- politically <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Megan wants to get rid of LED lights. I want to get rid of the uh, traffic lights on 118th. And if you're one of our listeners not from Edmonton, uh, thank you for listening. Just imagine a stupid traffic circle that also has lights. <laughs> Wouldn't that be dumb? Why would you have both? Right? I'm glad you're on my side. Avery, if you were uh, king, what would uh, you, what fairly innocuous political change would you uh, bring about? Fairly innocuous political change. Hmm, that's a that's a great that's a, that's a that's a great question. Oh, I got I got one for you. I got one for you. If you are if you are caught walking in a mall with your head down and bump into somebody, a thousand dollar fine. Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention. Thousand dollars. <laughs> Pay attention to where you're walking. Uh, and of course, if you can't pay the thousand dollars, one of your loved ones will be executed in front of you. That I thought was the implied subtext of what a- Avery was saying. Um, all right, that that's, a- that's a you know what? It's interesting that you say that. That's a good one. I also it makes me think of when I was in university and people would walk in Hub Mall like three abreast, and the the walkway is not wide enough for three people to walk side by side. Um, and that used to drive me absolutely insane. And I'm not an especially fast walker, but like it would drive me nuts if I like couldn't get around. Um, here's my other thing. The LED lights. I got one more thing. I went to the symphony on Saturday night. I went to a play on Thursday night. I have season tickets to the Citadel and to the, the symphony. And, you know, uh, so I do a lot of stuff where like you should be able to sit for a couple of hours, not be on your phone, you know, whatever. The number of people at the symphony uh, it was the Mahler Third Symphony. It was really, really great. It's a really long piece. The performance is about 100 minutes, no intermission. Um, and there's six movements in the symphony. So there's a little break kind of in between each movement. The number of people who like pulled out their phones to check their phone in that little tiny break, I was just like, how are you existing on this planet? Just put your phone on airplane mode. No one needs to get a hold of you that badly. Um, and just like be in the moment and enjoy things. And that drives me absolutely insane when people can't do that. That uh, I agree, but I less blame people than the technology. I can feel my own brain being rewired uh, by phones. Um, And yeah, I don't know exactly what to do about it, but we should think very carefully about the direction we are steering ourselves. It's our hands on the wheel here. We don't have to have uh, smartphones and social media. We can just stop having them if we want. And I think mm-hmm. you make a pretty good case that that would be a smart thing to do. Uh, but that's perhaps a larger conversation. So my homework assignment for you, our listeners, is go home and think about that. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this has been hockey this fortnight. Uh, we've been Stephen Avery and Megan. You've been our loyal listeners. God bless each and every one of you. I hope you find uh, riches, wealth, Love and erotic delights. Thanks for listening.